Okay, so welcome to our second class on Samadhi, our series of three. And I wanted to start with um, asking you guys uh, if you had any questions or um, comments from doing the uh, homework that I suggested, which was to uh, kind of work on creating the conditions for Samadhi and exploring uh, which of those various conditions that I had on there seemed useful and, and so forth. I know that uh, it can be a lot, but I'm curious if anyone has any follow-ups from that before we move on. Helen. Yeah, I, I didn't take notes, so I'm sure if you and you say the conditions will all come to me easy. But I did what I thought. My question is, um, at the beginning of your class last time, you talked about um, the breath, but also something for people who have asthma and have a hard time breathing. Because of the fires, et cetera, I use inhalers some of the time, and some of the time I do have a problem with the breathing. But I did not remember your alternative for your samadhi practice. I know other other practices, but not specifically um, what you were saying. Yeah, so a good option for that would be mindfulness of the body. So feeling yeah. the sensations of the body that sometimes people do the places where they're touching. So the touch points on the usually the seat and the feet, something like that, um, something physical. And am I assuming the same way with the breath with Samadhi that you don't go, you go up that I should not be like, like I did a, a 10 day sit. Uh, million years ago where um, we went from head to toe and toe to head. But I think what you're saying is like to pick one spot and not what we, we yeah. just stay at that one spot. Yeah, it's not a body scan. Right, so it's yeah. picking a spot and just mm -hmm. focusing on that one spot. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Other comments or questions? Yeah, actually. Oh. oh, okay. And then, okay. Thought I heard some two people speak, but go ahead, Helen, since you. Um, okay. Um, if you could just review what the conditions were that you mentioned. I'm sure oh, I have I put it, up, but I don't Yeah, know. so I put up that slide that had a bunch of lists and then it highlighted um, okay. uh, various. I don't have the slide right now. I guess I could try to get it open. Well, anyway, um, for brevity, uh, mindfulness is good. Ethics is absolutely the foundation. So one needs wise speech, action, and livelihood. Oh, right, right, right. Mindfulness, faith, energy, and various forms of happiness were the ones that I went over. Thanks. Okay, and did I see, Francis, did you have your... And no, okay. I, I'm not, can you hear me? I'm not very adept with this uh, Zoom yet. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I just, I, I liked uh, the, when you described concentric circles as the root for concentration, because uh -huh. also uh, that, you know, when I was younger, we used to try to be centered. And so that was 
you know, a clue for me to, uh, to set up the conditions, to try to set up the conditions. Nice. So that memory helped in that image. Yeah, sometimes images are better than words. So yeah, the concentric circles or the um, composure as another definition yeah, of samadhi. Mm -hmm. Nice. Thank you. I really like that. Maybe that's helpful for others too. Oh, okay, Evie. Well, I just wanted to say, I mean, I didn't have much to say, but just a little bit that I, I mean, I just thought they were really good precondition. You know, they, it was really, so I wasn't not responding because I hadn't thought about it. It's just that it, it worked. Like it, it, okay. it makes yeah. sense and it works. And, um, and of course, if you're feeling joy, at least for me, if I'm feeling joy, things are, you know, it's not, I'm not going to be able to do this practice right it makes it harder so so yeah that's a good it was a good list good. <laughs> as if you didn't know that <laughs> well no I'm, I'm glad to hear the the verification that's what we find in our own experience so thank you yeah that's valuable I also saw there was a question typed into the chat about there being noise and um, often using earplugs and whether samadhi is accessible then it is actually there are conditions for you know really deep samadhi uh there are maybe more stringent conditions but um kind of we're going to talk about different levels of samadhi today and the the lower levels of samadhi are highly accessible even with noise it's really that's okay in fact sometimes in monasteries in asia if a certain monk seems like uh they're getting too uh, attached to the peace and the stillness and the abbot is a little bit um, you know one of the tough types they'll send them to the city monastery <laughs> where it's noisy and crowded and you know and then then they, the monk is unhappy and they say see you have to learn how to deal with even these conditions so um, I think every Buddhist meditator at some point in their practice will be in a, in a situation where they thought it was going to be quiet and it's totally not and then they have to deal with that Sometime in your practice that will happen if it hasn't happened yet. I was on retreat one time at IRC um, here in Santa Cruz. So those of you who have been here know where that is. And it was, you know, one of those week-long retreats. And um, the very last Saturday before the retreat ended on Sunday, you know, everything was really still and we were sort of cruising toward the end. And the people across the street they didn't just have like a party at night, which would sometimes happen, but they had like a day long at their house with loudspeakers mm. and music and chanting. It was some kind of a spiritual thing that they were doing. Um, and it was quite uh, different from the kind of spiritual thing that we were doing. So that was, and uh, the teachers even were a little bit concerned about it. Like, oh, are they gonna start doing this every weekend? <laughs> you know, is this, so how often is this gonna happen? But, you know, we just dealt with the conditions. It was fine. Sandy, and then we'll go on. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm very sorry, I, I was late. I just had to throw in uh, a quote from Jay Krishnamurti, who wrote one time that uh, if you can't, his opinion was if you can't meditate on a third class train in India, then you can't meditate. Oh, okay, yeah. Third class trains are pretty much uh, person to person packed, usually. Hot. Okay, there we go. 
Okay, so um, I wanted to start today with um, uh, actually first a little quote from the texts um, for those of you who are thinking about mindfulness of breathing. The Buddha himself did mindfulness of breathing. So this is from one of the suttas. Concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. I, too, before my enlightenment, generally dwelt in this dwelling. When I dwelt in this dwelling, neither my body nor my eyes became fatigued, and my, my mind, by not clinging, was liberated from the taints. So there you go. The Buddha himself um, found this to be a useful meditation there's also one, I don't have it here, but where after his awakening, he went on retreat, you know, just for a pleasant abiding and used mindfulness of breathing. So, um, so today's topic is uh, jhana, actually. And, you know, we've talked about the conditions for creating samadhi. And so today I want to talk a little bit more about kind of the range of concentration that we can have. I'll generally use the translation concentration, although that's not I think I explained last time uh, the implications of using that word. Um, so samadhi is not just one thing. It's, um, it has many different levels, and there are many different types of samadhi. There are kind of lower levels where the mind is essentially peaceful, calm, happy. You know, they're just pleasant states that may come across and come, come upon you in meditation. Many people have experienced these, and sometimes the first time you experience them, if you normally have a very agitated mind, it can be like an awakening experience. <laughs> the mind can actually just settle and do nothing for 20 minutes or whatever, and it can be quite amazing and, and uh, give people a lot of confidence. And then as you get more skilled, there are you know there's these sort of the standard levels of samadhi. But there are also some distinct states of strong samadhi that are called jhana, and that's J-H long A-N-A. And they are also trans translated into English. It's sometimes translated as absorption or immersion, um, or it's just left untranslated as jhana. I think that's a fairly well-known Pali word. And there are um, four levels of jhana, and they are very clearly described in the suttas. Well, I know about very clearly, but they are clearly described in a very, in a set of stock phrases that are repeated in many suttas. So I thought I would just read it one of the times that it occurs. So it says, um, here, I'll read the description, this um, kind of top level description of all four jhanas. Here, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a meditator enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. With the stilling of applied and sustained thought, he or she enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought, with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. With the fading away as well of rapture, she abides in equanimity and mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body. She enters upon and abides in the third jhana, on account of which noble ones announce she has a pleasant abiding who has equanimity and is mindful. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, they enter upon and abide in the fourth jhana, 
which has neither pain nor pleasure and purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. How about that? It's pretty amazing. And I think I use different pronouns for every single one. So um, that is the, that's the kind of the short summary. And so uh, I'll go through a little bit what's going on there without you know, trying to overanalyze it too much, but to, so that we can understand what are these states that are being referred to at least somewhat. Uh, the five hindrances have been completely abandoned. That's why it says um, the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion for the first jhana. That means seclusion from the hindrances. So the five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and anxiety, and doubt, those five. And so those are gone from the mind. Uh, well, how do they get gone? <laughs> through all the techniques that we um, learn in other forms of meditation through, and also through the factors that are strengthened in order to generate samadhi through mindfulness, through faith, through energy and effort. Um, these states, these five hindrances can be abandoned uh, and so that, and you can imagine that a mind that has none of those things in it feels pretty good. <laughs> I mean, imagine if there were none of those five things, it, you know, there's really, the mind feels very good. So that's why you get rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Um, so the five hindrances are, they're suppressed. They're not, I mean, I say they're gone and they are not active, but they're not like eradicated from the mind. In fact, jhana cannot eradicate anything but it, it does suppress them completely so that they won't come at all while you're in the jhana. So that's kind of the what has to be eliminated, but there are also five things that have to be um, present for jhana to occur. So just eliminating the five hindrances is actually not enough to be in jhana. You will be in a, um, a what's, you'll be in a, a state of pretty good concentration, but it's not necessarily jhana. Um, so there have to be these five additional things called jhana factors. And they're mentioned uh, throughout this, they're threaded throughout the description, but you probably didn't catch them all necessarily. So the first one is applied thought. Second one is sustained thought, jirvitaka and vichara. So applied and sustained thought, they kind of go together. Uh, the third is joy, piti. The fourth is happiness, sukha. And the fifth is one-pointedness, or ekagata. So those are the five, vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and ekagata. And those have to all be there. And then, um, those are, so those are all present in the first jhana, and they're all very strong. Um, and then, to get to the higher jhanas, you don't add things, you subtract jhana factors. It's fascinating. So this is a simplification of the mind. So you get it into this state with five things eliminated and the five jhana factors there. And then you start taking away jhana factors to settle the mind down. So in the second jhana, notice the description says, with the stilling of applied and sustained thought, they enter upon and abide in the second jhana. So you eliminate supplied and sustained thought. You eliminate vitaka and vichara, and all that's left is piti, sukha, and ekagata in the second jhana. Then, in the third jhana, you eliminate the joy. So you're down to sukha and ekagata. However, other factors start coming in. For example, um, confidence comes in, as well as 
in the third jhana, you get mindfulness and equanimity noted. These are not jhana factors, but they're qualities that come forth as the other jhana factors are eliminated. So applied and sustained thought are relatively coarse. It's actually a form of thought. It's not discursive thinking, <laughs> but it is a form of using the cognitive part of the mind. And when that falls away, uh, you get a much stronger sense of, um, well, in this case, I believe in the second one, self-confidence is what it says. So you get a stronger sense of, of faith. And then in the, third, in the third jhana, when joy is gone, you feel a lot more mindfulness and equanimity start coming in. And then in the fourth jhana, you eliminate the happiness. And the only jhana factor left in the fourth jhana is ekagata, the one-pointedness. But equanimity gets very, very strong. It's not a jhana factor, but when the mind is that still, that's what you feel. So I hope that that's meant to give you kind of a sense of what's going on here, is that this is a simplification. Jhana is entirely about letting go. Everyone thinks it's, a, and they are attainments, they are called that, but it's not about getting the mind, getting the mind into a place and then building it to the second and then the third. Actually, you get it into a place and then you start eliminating things. And so it gets simpler, easier, quieter, calmer, more peaceful um, until there's really very little left in the mind by the fourth jhana very, very empty and still and equanimous. Very, very beautiful state. So there are lovely images. Oh, Evie has a question. What is one-pointedness? One-pointedness, here in the thing that, the long thing that I read, it was called singleness of mind. But, um, so one-pointedness uh, is, that's this unification factor. We could call it unification, making the mind concentric around a single object. We could call it focus, but that's usually a hard, you know, it gives the wrong image for people. But the mind has uh, really only one, um, I'll be careful, um, single, the mind is unified around what it's doing. I can't quite say it has only a single object of focus because the suttas don't actually require that. Only the, I'm going to talk about different understandings of jhana. One of the understandings is that it has only one object, and that's, but the suttas are a little bit more permissive than that. So I'll just say unification of the mind around its task for one-pointedness. It's a distinct feeling. You can feel it. You can see this factor in the mind, and it's there. You'll know because it's kind of the because it's the thing that remains throughout all of jhana, all the other ones fall away, that's the thing where you can tell you've entered jhana. This is the mind is like, you know, you, you just, you feel that factor. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that, hopefully to make it clearer. But I, I wanna also give some images that are used for the four jhanas. They're very beautiful. Um, so let's see, I'll read the one for the first because it's, the coarsest. It's so funny, these are all really fine states of mind, but the coarse one, the first jhana, is um, described like this. Um, the first jhana, so the person enters upon and abides in the first jhana, and you'll hear some similarity here, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. The other one said that. Then it says, um, they make the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body 
so that there is no part of their body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. And then the simile, just as a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it till the moisture wets the ball of bath powder, soaks it and pervades it inside and out, yet the ball itself does not ooze. So too, uh, the meditator makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, drench, deep, fill, and pervade the body, etc. So it's this bath man image. We don't have bath men, but you could imagine um, flower and water, if you will. But I kind of like the bath man image. You can imagine it um, making a soap ball, essentially. And so it has this image of water drenching, filling, steeping, and pervading the body. It's like you're working this beautiful feeling of seclusion throughout the whole body um, uh, in a very uniform way. To me, it's significant that there are two components. So we still have kind of the sense that the body and the mind are different and are working together, working into each other. And then you'll see a contrast in the second one. I'm not going to really have time to read all four, I think. But um, so with the stilling of applied and sustained thought, a meditator enters upon and abides in the second jhana, which has self-confidence and singleness of mind without applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. They make the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, drench, steep, fill, and pervade their body so that there is no part of their whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from east, west, north, or south and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain, then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake so that there would be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So too, they make the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, drench, steep, etc. So we now have an image of a lake with an underground spring that's filling it. It's only one substance, but there, um, there are two components of it, and it's uh, not getting any input from anywhere else. So we have the second jhana, the idea that there's uh, really kind of a self-sustaining force. It doesn't require applied and sustained thought anymore. It doesn't require any effort anymore. Uh, it is sustaining itself entirely, and that's why it's born of concentration, not born of seclusion. So it's born of the first jhana itself. It will transition into this deeper state by letting go of the thought, any, any mental process associated with that. Um, Mel, and then Helen. Um, can you say more about the use of the word thought in the translation? I, I heard of Kagata and, and as aiming and sustaining attention, but I don't get what thought means in this context. Yeah, that's a good question. What are vitaka and vichara, the first two factors? Um, there is disagreement in, with, between scholars and meditators and teachers about what that means exactly, how much thought is allowed. <laughs> um, generally, they agree discursive thought about you know, other things is not allowed. 
but the mind um, is somehow directing itself at the object. And this is, this is pointing to an experience that we all have as we're working with samadhi and with an object is that if you want to focus on the breath, say, you have to connect with the breath. So we direct our mind to connecting with the breath, and then you have to keep it there uh, and not like wander off the next moment to, to think to a thought or to a body sensation or to something else. So it's this sense of connecting with the object and then sustaining contact with the object that's done through some kind of an act of volition um, at the beginning. And uh, one other image given in a different text is like a, a bee coming into a flower and then walking around and getting the pollen all over its legs. Or if you're um, cleaning a bell with a cloth, you, you put the cloth against the bell and then you rub it and that's applied and sustained thought. So these are images that can help us connect with and stay with the object as is needed in order to generate jhana. And so in, when we get to the first jhana, there's a sense that um, there won't, there's no falling away from the object anymore. You use the word volition. Would I go wrong thinking of it as intention? So yeah, there's an intention there. Yeah, no, you wouldn't go wrong with that. Okay. Yeah. Helen, did you have a comment? That's a question. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to apply what you said about the first and second jhana, and I don't have a clear sense of the difference between them. And I am thinking that the word concentration that you're using in the second one, that's where I'm getting mixed up where of the first one. So the focus on the, what you were saying, the first one, so you've got the breath and then you're focusing on the breath with attention and that's the bell um, of going around cleaning it. So it's like the breath that that's, is- That's the Vitaka and Nichara, yeah. But then the second one, second jhana, you don't focus, but you have concentration. And I don't have any kind of experiential sense of that in terms of shift. So if you're using breath as the example, how okay. would, what would be the example then? Yeah, there, there one enters more deeply into concentration on the breath. There's no, okay. there's never any falling away from the object in so, general. Okay. Uh, and, but you're no longer, you no longer have to try, <laughs> you know, it's like you're, you're just in it and it's, um, you can Breathing feel you. this. You feel, yeah, you, yeah. You, you can feel, uh, there's a lot of joy. Once the, of course, the uh, thought falls away, joy, happiness, and one-pointedness are strong, as well as self-confidence. And so it's just, it's incredibly happy state and mm -hmm. kind of powerful, actually. It's got this image of the spring, and eventually that gets to be too much, <laughs> and we let go of that, and it gets even quieter. The third jhana, I can't read the whole thing. I don't have time, but it's uh, an image of uh, lotuses in a lake just and they only live underwater they don't it's not this image of the thing coming out in the mud and so forth they're only living in the lake and they're just totally surrounded by still cool water so this is much quieter and then the image for the fourth john is that the person there's a person um sitting on the bank of the water completely covered by a white cloth um and so there's a sense that you're um really inside of your own little world in the fourth jhana, and it's completely pure and clean. So using breath makes sense if you're using a part of the body 
you just become more at one with that part of the body? I mean, how would you? Um, it's you know, it's no longer that. a part of the body. It just is your entire experience. There's no. You're just. Yeah. It's the concentration. That's the experience, not the breath or not the body. That becomes. Yeah, it's not. It's not the same. It's a different kind of experience. So actually, that kind of leads into what I wanted to say next, which is that. Um, thank you for that. Which is that the suttas are not totally precise about how to cultivate jhana or what constitutes it exactly. I mean, they have these nice images, which are, are clear when, when you experience them. But there's a later commentary called the Vasudhimaga, which is um, from about the 5th century CE. So that makes it about 900 years after the Buddha lived. And it was written by uh, Buddha Gosa, a monk, uh, who, uh, and it, it articulates a very precise analytical development of jhana that is based on the suttas but is much more detailed. It has really precise descriptions of exactly how you do each of these steps to get into it. Now the thing is that this type of jhana, it has some consistency with what's said in the suttas but also some inconsistency. It is an interpretation of the sutta text that doesn't fully match up with them. I don't think there are any teachers that say they are completely, clearly identical or, or yeah, equivalent and consistent. So it, however, it does give a very clear path of practice that many masters have used and now teach. So I would say it's a distinct development in Buddhist training. Um, so it's a different kind of jhana, a different level of jhana, you know, who knows what language is right here. Teachers will have different ways of saying that. So what is different? Um, well, what's the same, first of all? The Vasudhimaga still acknowledges that the five jhana factors are completely critical. It still has the falling away of the jhana factors as you step up through the jhanas, um, the same sequence of abandoning them, etc. But one of the main differences is that the jhana described in the Vasudhimaga, um, well, let's say the jhana described in the suttas, there's good evidence that the meditator retains some sensation of the physical body. It's, it's stated clearly that the mindfulness of the body can be done with the jhanas. Um, however, there's nowhere is it stated that it's the same understanding of your body. That's why I said to Helen, it's not the same um, experience exactly. Still material, but it's, it's not like your normal consciousness, not like that. Uh, but it is clearly the body. However, the Vasudhimaga doesn't agree with that. It says that when you get to the first jhana, you lose all sensation of the body. It's just gone. You only have mental experience. And therefore, you can't do, uh, and the mind is completely fixed, locked onto the object, and you cannot do insight practice in the kind of jhana that's described in the Vasudhimaga because the object is completely still. There's no anicca going on. Whereas in the suttas, it's evident that you can. There are suttas that say that people have done insight practice from inside of jhana. So there's another inconsistency between the two of them. I don't want to get too wrapped up in all these details. I just want you to know that these are the these are what that's what's out there. Um, so some teachers go so far as to say there's sutta jhana and there's Vasudhimaga jhana, and they're just two different systems. Others aren't quite ready to be that precise about saying there's different language. But maybe, maybe a reasonable description is we could say that in one of these types of jhana, the, there is no single, there's no wavering from a single object, and the mind just becomes absorbed into a completely fixed mental 
image that is not moving at all. That's the Vasudhimana type jhana. And it's a distinct experience where there's, yeah, there's nothing moving. Uh, in sutta jhana, the mind is unmoving. The mind becomes completely still, but it's possible for the object to have some movement. That's why you have this experience, say, of the underwater stream. And it does kind of feel like that a little bit. Um, so it's, you can't quite say that there's no shift in experience and there's enough that you can do some insight practice, but the mind itself is completely unmoving and that's what makes it a jhana. That's what makes it uh, complete stillness, not just regular samadhi. Helen. Thank you. Um, but they use images, but I'm assuming we should not use images for the focus of our concentration. These are not, I'm, yes. These and it are seems not, like that would be um, cheating, but that, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, these are not visualizations. Please don't treat these as visualizations. Um, I've, I've taught them to people and had them come back and say, oh, what a great visualization. I loved it so much. And it's like, okay, <laughs> but that's nice, but it wasn't Jhana. Um, he said, no, these are meant to be experiences. They're metaphors that would come out of an experience, distinct sen sensory experience. So um, uh, we won't go into all the arguments <laughs> about these differing schemes and so forth. In fact, there are even some other variations and additional commentarial texts that describe yet other things. But uh, maybe I'll just say one more thing is that the Vasudhi Magga describes different um, types of concentration and it has just because you might hear this term it has a thing called access concentration which is right before jhana starts so that's the level where the five hindrances are eliminated access concentration is sufficient for insight um, but it's not jhana and then you then you would switch into jhana when you go to a completely fixed mental image so um yeah are there any questions at this point? Yeah, Evie. You need to know where you're going to get there. <laughs> um, good question. Let's see. There are, there are several ways that jhanas can happen. Um, one is they can happen accidentally. You can literally just fall into one of them. <laughs> um, and that happens to people sometimes on retreat but it's completely not stable and not repeatable. Usually it's just a shocking, amazing experience. Um, you can also force your way into them. Uh, you can sort of force your way into concentration a little bit, but it's very dry, brittle, doesn't last. And then the other is that you understand the system and you can systematically develop it with some help. You don't need to have read all the texts and have the intention and look for all the factors. The Vasudhimaka method says you do, and it has all these exercises that you have to do on each level and perfect this and that and make sure you've mastered these different aspects and then you're allowed to go on, etc. cetera. Uh, Sutta jhana evolves a little more organically um, and you can kind of follow it along intuitively if you have the idea that you're gonna just keep finding states that are more and more peaceful. Uh, the mind will be able to go through them. It helps to have a teacher, but uh, that you, you could get through it just with the idea that you want to find a more and more peaceful state. But I think it helps to have at least heard about it. I don't actually mean like, like I misstated my question. Because I can imagine that you could like move along this path with like knowing what these practices are, like knowing what you 
want to be doing, but that's different from knowing where you're going to get. What do you mean by where you're going to get? Well, like, you know, you're describing all of these different, like these four different states, right? Like, and at least theoretically, it seems like, you know, you could potentially have, you know, follow some path and get to them without knowing a lot about where you're going to get. Like if you follow these, you know, if you do these things kind of, it's right. Like, it's like, it's like, you don't need to know if, if you're going to, to use another metaphor, you know, say, I, you know, you can follow some path and know that, okay, I want to follow this path. And then, but you don't know that what's at the end of it is, you know, a beautiful lake or whatever. Like, you know, it's a worthwhile hike, but you don't know how to describe. You don't know like, oh, there are these trees over there and there's this here and there's the blue, right? Like, so those are different things to me, knowing what the practice is and knowing what the, um, or what, what the training is and what the goal or what the states are. Yeah, I was trying to address that, obviously not very clearly. Um, the first time you do it, you don't know what they are. <laughs> so in a sense, you have to feel your way in. Um, I don't think you have to have read these exact images and so forth. I think it's good enough to know the practice and have a teacher give you the practice and then you'll discover them. They're, the reason why they're so well articulated and get so much emphasis is that for some reason, this, these are states that the human mind can go through. They're distinct, they're pretty clear, they're pretty, it's, there's obviously four of them, you know, it's, uh, for some reason, the mind can do this, and people discovered it at some point, and so then there's all these technologies for uh, how to do that. It's kind of amazing, right? These descriptions are in a th something that was uh, done by people 2,600 years ago, articulated by the Buddha. Here we are across the world 2,600 years later in a totally different culture. Our minds can do exactly the same thing if we sit down and create those conditions. To me, this generates a huge amount of confidence in the Buddha's teachings. He knew what the mind could do, you know, and he articulated it quite well. So why not believe the other stuff? <laughs> so, Anne. I'm just curious. Oh, Sayadale, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Sayadale's approach is his, the Sudhimaga? The Sudhimaga, yeah. I didn't quite hear your question. Oh, it's the... Paul, uh, Paul Al Sayadaw. He's kind of um, Tina. Pawak Sayadaw, yes. Yeah, yeah, I know I, I had that right. Is he the Vasudhi Maga approach? He does teach the Vasudhi Maga approach, okay. yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, there are teachers who emphasize one more than the other. And yeah, Pawak Sayadaw is one that you might have heard of. He's a living master now who teaches the Vasudhi Maga method. I don't know how much he teaches anymore. He's getting up there, but he has students that are authorized to teach it. Any other questions? Sorry if you can hear a little background noise here. Uh, Sandy, yeah. Um, this is kind of a naive question, I guess, but uh, um, are the jhanas things that can only be 
accessed by people with really super advanced practice practices or no are they more generally available they're totally generally available the jhanas are mundane um, so even attaining the fourth jhana and having complete mastery of it is not any kind of awakening um, so yeah they're totally accessible Deborah. I'm curious, um, you yourself and practicing this, what you might attribute to it, what you might notice, you know, that perhaps is sustained. And then um, kind of my context is I, I did a five-day retreat in silence um, a couple of years ago, and we used uh, Ajahn Brahm's book, Mindfulness, Bliss, and Beyond, and I didn't know anything about the dramas. And I did not feel during that time that I achieved any state, and I was a little frustrated. However, about midway through the week, I was doing a walk, um, and I experienced a shift in perception. And it kind of snuck up on me in the way that I um, noticed things that I had not seen in, the, in, in all the prior walks. It was a small, um, small ground. And I took pictures and I was really struck by the experience of the pictures more than what I even experienced on the walk, that I, I felt like I had different eyes. I don't know that I have carried, because I haven't practiced it. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you don't continue to practice this experience. It's like a reference point. Oh, that was kind of cool. Um, I don't know if it was even a jhana state, but it came from this, uh, you know, retreat of talks around it, reading the book and so forth. Yeah, so um, these are reference points for the mind. You know, the mind understands, oh, it's possible to be much more aware than I normally am. And there's a, usually a brightness of colors and, um, yeah, a change in perception and sense. And so that alerts the mind that its normal state of consciousness is not the only option. And there's, um, there are things that are deeper and clearer and so forth. So these are forms of samadhi. And um, uh, they can be retained, but you have to keep practicing them. They will fall away if you don't. Okay. Um, but yeah, with a regular practice, um, I don't want to say how much, but uh, people who are really seriously cultivating jhana do a lot of practice every day and sustain it. But we, we wouldn't need that necessarily if we were working just with lower levels of samadhi. So yeah, is it something you incorporate into your daily practice yourself? Or how, I'm just curious, you know, as a lay person, how to kind of bring that in when one is doing so many other things? Yeah, if for, a regular, for a busy lay life, it's hard to um, seriously cultivate concentration at home, unless you've done it on retreat and are retaining it. Um, but for many people, the exploration it can come on retreat. But we can cultivate all the factors and conditions in our regular life, and that all of that will build momentum that will make it easier to go deeper right when we get on retreat. But yeah, these are all conditioned states. They're not, you know, they're not... Um, like the unconditioned where we're supposed to be able to, you know, uh, 
have this un have wisdom or understanding all the time in all conditions. Samadhi is a distinct state that you create. <laughs> and so it does have conditions and it can't be done in certain circumstances. Um, it depends on your whole history. You know, if you've done lots and lots and lots of jhana practice, it might retain for a long time the ability to still do samadhi mm -hmm. even if you go on and do other things. It's just momentum. Thank you. Okay, well with that, um, oh, Leslie, and then we're gonna meditate. Great, thank you. I just wanted to add a comment from personal experience in relationship to that question. In my own experience over the last 15 years or so using concentration practices, um, it really took the intensity and the dosage of retreat to then begin to develop a pathway that was uh, kind of worn and easier to follow in non-retreat yeah. practice. Exactly, yeah. And it's like a, 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 a sort of a neural pathway, a body pathway. And it got to the point where I could just say the word samadhi, it's happening right now, and I could feel a certain sensation in my chest. I could feel a certain sort of settling. And that came only because of doing extensive concentration-related retreat practice that grounded and set up the pathways to become easier. So it's a real good argument for making time for some extended retreat practice. It really wasn't until I did a 10-day retreat, for example, that I could reliably go through the process, the sequencing that Kim is describing. Yeah, and it, different people have different proclivities for concentration also, and so yes. um, I wouldn't worry too much about the exact timing of, of it. Some people might take longer than that, and that's fine, um, yeah. The other thing I remember learning that I just add in, and Kim, you may have already spoken about this, is that the more I kind of grasped after wanting to achieve certain things, the harder it was. Yes. And when you talked <laughs> about- Samadhi is a letting go practice. <laughs> yeah, when you talked about just being out on a walk, it's kind of like in those times, you're naturally more likely to be letting go. And that's when kind of the, the naturalness of some of this can take over without our grasping and crunching and crushing it all. So um, wanting it to happen is not the way. <laughs> well, it's desire. It's one of the hindrances. So what often happens is we start getting a taste. You know, the mind yeah. does actually let go of the hindrances. And we're so excited by that the first time we go, oh, is this the first jhana? Is this it? Did I do it? Oh, wow, how do I keep this? It's like, it's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll probably happen the first time. <laughs> I, I also want to apologize. I have another commitment and we'll need to be leaving a little bit early. It has okay. nothing to do with the teaching or our experience. And I want to get now to the meditation before I'd have to do that. <laughs> okay. okay. One comment, uh, Kim. Yeah, Gary. Uh, you know what Leslie's talking about is planting a seed. And that's nice what we're doing right now. That's exactly what we're doing. We're seeding our mind for this 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 thing to arise. 
Yeah. Good nice metaphor. image. Beautiful. Okay, well then with that, with that prompt, why don't we go ahead and, um, and sit together. So please find a spot where you'll, um, you can be comfortable for a little while and settle into that, sit down and gently close your eyes. Maybe taking a long, slow, deep breath, just to connect the breath into the whole body. And then softening on the way out. Feeling where the body is sitting, seat against the chair, the legs or feet against the floor. And just having a sense that you're supported and stable. You can even shift a little bit just to make sure that you're really sitting in the center so that you're using the least amount of effort to keep your body upright. And then just as preparation, softening the eyes and the eye sockets, softening the jaw, shoulders, belly, and the legs, hands and feet, just inviting general ease through the body. And then allowing the attention to settle on to the sensations of breathing just as they are. You don't need to do anything or make the breath any particular way, just sensing how it is right now. And noticing a spot or a region where it's pretty easy to feel the breath, both coming in and going out. The size doesn't matter so much. Or some people choose the, the, the whole body breathing. But generally we would choose some spot or some area. And at first just being very easeful about just noticing the whole length of the breath from the beginning of the in-breath all the way through the end and then when it turns around, staying with it through the out-breath. Like watching waves on the beach Softening the eyes and softening the mind. Sometimes people try a little too hard. So just, just watching, 
gently. And when the mind wanders away or gets distracted, it's important just to softly, gently come back. Remember that one of the factors for samadhi is joy and tranquility. So we don't mess up our mind by having a judgment or a thought or it's wandered oh, just Start again softly, gently with the breath. Checking gently the energy level of the mind. Is it a little sleepy or is it a little busy? Intending for some balanced energy, alert and relaxed. tension seems to be building up in the body. In this early phase, we can gently scan the body every now and then and soften anything that might have gotten tight. And then return immediately to the breath. can be helpful to use one of these images for the connecting and sustaining. So uh, a bee connecting with the flower and then walking around in it, getting pollen on its legs. Or a bowl, a brass bowl, 
that we clean by putting a cloth against it and then rubbing the cloth on the hole. Another image is a bird that flies up into the sky with by flapping its wings some effort and then coasts on the draft. It catches an updraft and coasts along on that, connecting and sustaining with the air. And if you begin to feel any sense of joy or pleasure in the body or in the mind, noticing that and allowing it to pervade your experience. simple pleasure of being with a single object is so easeful for the mind. We're tuning into that as we continue to connect and sustain.
as we begin to have a sense of the breath as a, a gentle flow past the spot where we're looking, we can begin to spread that quiet, pleasant sensation throughout the body. Not all at once, just as if it were flowing through the air channels, through the energy channels. The mind remains quite still. We just make the, the breath more of a whole body experience. Even though the physical air only fills the lungs, each breath somehow pervades the body. We connect, sustain with that whole body experience and the simple pleasure and joy that accompany it. If it feels natural, you can even slightly upturn the corners of the lips. Slight smile, subtle.
You may find that the boundaries of the body are not so clear. Don't worry about it. As if the breath is kind of coming in many different places around the body. Don't worry about it. Just letting the mind and the body and the breath mix together, become unified. Working the water into our ball of bath powder. Gently, easily. Stillness.
So gently returning to uh, normal consciousness. And let me ask um, first if you have any questions or, or comments. Well, you can keep thinking, and I have a few things. Oh, Cindy, were you leaning forward there? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, so I have a lot of pain in my body today. I have sciatica, so that was like really, it was hard to um, stay with the breath. Yeah. So any, any, uh, pointers and working with that? Yeah, um, pain is, of course, a common experience in meditation, although that particular pain is especially distracting. Um, it can be helpful to kind of include it uh, along with the breath, like, um, you know, like breathing through the areas of pain, for example. Mm -hmm. So you're still staying with the breath, but you're not trying to ignore the pain or put it out you know, you like, oh, I, I only want to have the breath. I don't want the pain. That will tend to distract the mind or create a conflict in the mind, which is agitating. So I think if it's a strong pain, it has to be somehow included. And you might just try breathing through it, putting more of the attention on the breath, but letting the pain have its space also. That's what I would try first with pain. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Good question. I bet other people had that question too. Okay, Mel. Um, I don't know how to describe. I uh, well, I just said first, I yawned a lot, and it and it kind of, I and I yawn. And, and, and it feels like I'm de-stressing, uh -huh. not the stress, but unstressing. And um, and it, and then it was just very pleasant. I but there are still cognitive thoughts, discursive th thoughts mm -hmm. happening. But I started feeling like light, and then I don't get it. But it wasn't just like in my head. Do you mean and, physically light, or you saw a light, a visual? No, no, light? I, I didn't. I mean, my eyes were shut. Okay, well, but, but it still we was like kind of an inner radiance. Shut. Okay, yeah. And um, and I and I had said, I mean, this is a little more than twenty years ago. I I, I did a, a month long jhana retreat, and occasionally I I think of that, and I didn't. I thought it was a really good practice retreat, but I didn't think of it as being, you know, especially 
Johnic, if that's a word. Um, but when I would think of the, but when I recalled the retreat, it was like, it really intensified the experience to me. It's like I could remember it the way it, that experience without trying, just recalling that really deepened what I was experiencing. So is, yeah. is that? If something like that starts to happen, I mean, should I just try to stay with my, I mean, I was with my breath, but that, that memory of, of and it would maybe be different aspects of it, it would just, you know, pass yeah. through. Yeah, there's, um, different teachers will approach this different ways, but this um, radiance or a sense of a light, even with the eyes shut, so I know you're not meaning a physical light, um, is associated with the beginning phases of concentration sometimes. Mm -hmm. And some teachers of samadhi, I should say, and some teachers will use that. And, you know, you can, like the Sudhimaga jhana, actually you, you use the light and you eventually absorb into the light in the most common form of it. So it may be that your mind is well attuned to that kind of samadhi. Or it can be that the light comes for a while and then fades and it's, you know, it's just sort of a sign that your mind is gathering. Um, so, and, and you'll eventually have some different kind of jhana experience. But, um, so I think the thing to do with the light is not to get too excited about it or not, and not to um, try to make it into a conflict with the breath, like, oh, should I do the light or should I do the breath? But just kind of like stay, I think staying with the breath, but maybe continuing to be aware of the light and see what it does um, can be helpful. But don't get too distracted by it. I think even when you're using the radiance, as does happen in Vasudhimaga practice, you, you, you don't kind of, you, you do it gradually. You kind of gradually replace one with the other. So you don't need to try to do anything with getting rid of the breath or anything. It will fade when it needs to. So I would I would still emphasize the breath as you continue to get concentrated. Okay. okay. I, I, I actually I just think I mean I, I was staying with the breath and I wasn't like clinging to that. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it just happens. Feeling enjoyment. So. Okay. Great. Yeah, you can kind of spread that through the body. It sounds like various important factors we're developing. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, Helen, and then we'll go on. Um, I'll only ask the first part of my question. Maybe next time I'll ask the second part. Do you only do the samadhi practices and the chantas? Or do you also do other forms? And when do you decide to do what? And I'm just you personally, just just to. Oh, you're asking I'm, me. I'm asking you personally. Yes. Oh. Not, not um, one. Now, in the abstract, of course, we can do whatever we want. Of course, I'm asking because you teach this, and I can see where there would be a subtle um, craving to do only the jhanas, but I also see the importance of other practices too. So I'm just wondering your experience of. 
My experience is that they will. Yes. I mean, when you, your actual practical, do you sit down and go, I'm going to do samadhi work in the jhanas, or you just sit down and let whatever happen? And when do you specifically choose one versus the other? Just your own, if you want to, if you're willing to share. Um, I, my practice has been through a lot of different phases, so I don't have one way that I can characterize it. Um, I can I can say that there have been times in my practice when samadhi was very important and times when it was not at all. Um, and that uh, learning that skill of learning, like what should I do when I sit down on the cushion is part of wisdom. And so that's something that we kind of figure out for ourselves. There are also mm -hmm. times when certain practices become very important, like they just feel like, oh, now is the time to do samadhi or now is the time to do metta there's often a phase in people's practice when metta is really really important so i think i don't have a i don't think my a specific answer about my own practice is actually useful uh, but i can speak in these general ways and say that this is part of the whole path well you just answered it you gave me the yeah thank you that was what i was asking okay good yeah well, we'll also yeah, into yeah. the the last thing i wanted to say which is that the the key function of jhana, you know, why would we, why are we doing this, is actually the same as the function of samadhi in general, which is to sharpen and clarify the mind in preparation for insight. That is the purpose of jhana and samadhi. They are not ends in and of themselves. Um, they can't, they are tempting because they're so pleasant and some people will get hooked on them. You know, it will happen. And some people won't even, some teachers won't even teach samadhi and jhana because they're afraid that people will get hooked on them i am not of that type um, but that can happen the mind can get hooked on anything um, but only insight frees the mind so if you're looking for awakening and freedom from suffering only insight can do that jhana suppresses things but it doesn't it can't eliminate anything in and of itself but it's very very useful because the mind, as we know, anyone who's meditated for even 20 minutes knows that the mind is not in a normally a very clear and sharp state, right? We're not seeing the end of suffering very easily. We're mostly doing other things. So jhana and samadhi are great skills and abilities to have in the mind to get it to a quiet enough state where you can actually see something. And that's how the mind is gonna be free. So, there are a lot of different combinations to how we would develop samadhi and insight, or also called yoksti in the teachings, shamatha and vipassana practice. That's what those refer to, calming and seeing practices. There's a lot of different ways. They can be done separately. They can be done in conjunction. Um, the suttas uh, do not clearly separate these two, like now you're doing this, now you're doing that, or you do this first and then you do that. It's very hard to find that distinction in the suttas. They're kind of interwoven. And there are even suttas that say that in an awakened person, shamatha and vipassana have come into balance. So it's clear, we're gonna have both, we have to have both. And in an awakened person, they kind of have both in balance. Uh, the Vasudhimaga, however, um, has a slightly different idea. They are forced to separate them. Remember I said earlier in the Vasudhimaga, they say that you can't do insight practice from inside of jhana. So they have a path where you do jhana and that's all you can do. And then at some point you switch and you yeah. do vipassana practice. So they have to make this distinction because of this 
uh, understanding in the Vasudhimaga that uh, it's so still that you can't do insight practice. However, even the Vasudhimaga has a what's called a dry insight path where you don't do jhana. You start with insight right away and they have a whole bunch of insight practices that you can do through a bunch of different stages of insight uh, and you don't need to do the jhana, uh, which is the moist path as opposed to the dry path. So they're different. What the suttas say and what the Vasudhimaga say are different, but kind of in the details, but you know, kind of in the end, you're gonna have to have both of them somehow. Um, maybe I'll say that the, in the end, I think there's a big battles about whether you need jhana and what you need jhana for. Do you need it for stream entry? Do you need it only for full awakening? And you could be a stream enterer without it. Don't get into all that. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Just do your practice. Um, but the suttas do say very clearly uh, that the definition of sama samadhi, the eighth step of the path, the definition of sama samadhi is the four jhanas. So if you're going to do the whole eightfold path, seems clear enough that in the suttas they say that you had have to have the four jhanas. That doesn't mean that you have to have them for any particular stage. Just somehow by the time you're an arhant, you have to have them. Or does it mean that if you have any one of them, it's enough? There are suttas that say using the first jhana, you can get all the way to arhantship. Good enough. So, you know, maybe you don't need to have all four. So it's a little ambiguous when you start getting to all that. And I also think not very useful to try to figure all that out ahead of time, plan it all out. Okay, if I get this, then I can do that. Just do your practice. <laughs> but I'm just telling you this because people will say different things to you. Teachers will swear up, down, and sideways that it's this way or that way. I'm telling you there's a lot of different ideas about this. And um, I think you should have that information. So, but see how your practice unfolds and find a teacher who's compatible with how your practice is unfolding. Yeah. Okay, I wanna respect your time. It is our, the end of our time. Um, so if anyone has any last questions, maybe we could do just anything that you can't leave without asking and otherwise we'll come back next time. Okay, good. My hope was to spend more time next time on uh, samadhi and insight, kind of the relation between those. So have a wonderful week. If you want, you can practice uh, looking for the jhana factors in your, I don't think you're going to get to jhana. It's very unlikely in a home practice if you haven't done it before, but you never know. Um, but you can look for the jhana factors, the supplied and sustained thought, the pleasure, the happiness, the joy, the happiness, and the one-pointedness. I talked through those in the guided meditation. So have a great week. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.